Hey, what's going on, veterinary anesthesia nerds? I am joined by a really special guest today. If you have ever been to any of the veterinary anesthesia nerds conferences, if you have ever been on the veterinary anesthesia nerds Facebook group, you know our next guest as someone who is always going to give you all of the best information and answer your questions in like the kindest way possible. I'm talking about none other than Darcy Palmer. You guys know her. You love her. Darcy is a VTS in anesthesia. She has been a technician for a really long time. She's super experienced. She currently works at Tuskegee University College of Veterinary Medicine. She not only teaches the students and lectures, but she also runs clinical anesthesia cases. She is the executive secretary of the Academy of Veterinary Technicians in Anesthesia and Analgesia. And she's also one of our main administrators between Stephen and I of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds Facebook page. So thank you so much, Darcy, for being here today. Thank you for having me, Tasha. This is a treat. All right, Darcy. So we have you here today because, A, you're a wealth of information, but I wanted you to take some time specifically to talk about rough recoveries in patients. What are some techniques and things that we can do? And also, you know, getting people to understand the terminology, because I think that sometimes we see that people will confuse dysphoria with um, emergence delirium versus pain. And I want to talk about the three of those things today and how we can differentiate that. Um, And because we always like to be case-based, I like to use the case that I run across a lot working in a specialty and emergency, which is the orthopedic patient. So Darcy, let's say that we have a, you know, two-year-old German shepherd that is in for a TPLO procedure And they were given an epidural during the procedure, and they had hydro in their pre-med, maybe hydro and dexmed in their pre-med, and we got a good epidural. The anesthetic event itself went well. Now we're in recovery, and almost as soon as the patient was extubated, you know, they're doing that classic, like, harbor seal, like, bah, and it's taking two technicians to sit on this patient, Walk us through, in your experience, how can we differentiate between is this dysphoria, is this pain, is this just emergence delirium, and what do all of those things look like? Sure. So uh, speaking directly about that case first, it can oftentimes be really difficult to determine or define what the actual cause is of a rough recovery. So for our case at hand, Uh, It doesn't really matter what the cause is. You're going to follow a pretty standard algorithm to get that behavior under control as quickly as possible. So if a patient wakes up rough, uh, one of the first things that I do is consider giving another pure agonist opioid to address pain in case that is the cause. Um, And then I usually follow that with a microdose of dexmedetomidine or acepromazine. So in this case, because the dog got dexmedetomidine as a pre-med, I'm going to go ahead and give uh, one microgram per kilo dose of dexmed IV in recovery, as well as another dose of hydromorphone. If pain or emergence delirium were the cause of that rough recovery, those two drugs right there should halt the behavior calm the patient down and allow for a smoother recovery within the next 10 to 15 minutes. So that's really um, the staple way that I go about handling a rough recovery. It doesn't really matter what the cause is. I addressed pain and the potential for emergence delirium. So how did we differentiate between pain and emergence delirium? Well, patients that are painful 
Um, they tend to be very vocal on recovery, but as soon as you administer an analgesic agent, they tend to calm down. Um, they also respond to human interaction. So if the patient is thrashing in recovery, gentle restraint is very important because you want to minimize harm to the patient and to personnel that are working around that animal. So while somebody is administering the analgesic agent, there should be somebody else who is gently restraining the animal. And usually it takes one or two people to be available to help with that gentle restraint of the patient so that you can easily and quickly get the drugs into them intravenously. Once the patient has calmed down, then you can go back and look at the anesthetic record to try to figure out, was it pain or was it emergence delirium? So some characteristics between uh, pain and emergence delirium, that depends on the duration of the procedure in itself. So if we gave hydromorphone as a pre-med and that the epidural was amazing and so the patient didn't have any issues intraop with being nociceptively stimulated, well, if that procedure took four hours or longer, then the hydro is gone by the time that patient recovered. And so giving an additional dose of hydromorphone was definitely warranted. Um, same similar situation, though. If that procedure lasted four hours, there's a good chance that the initial pre-med of dexmedetomidine is also starting to wane its effects in recovery as well. So emergence delirium usually occurs when there is lack of adequate sedation on board at the time of recovery. So regardless if it's pain or emergence delirium, we're going to treat in a similar fashion and we're going to give another analgesic agent and we're going to give that microdose of sedation. Which makes a lot of sense. But Darcy, I feel like when I go into practices and again, my own practice that I work at, a lot of people, when a patient has this, you know, rough recovery or is vocal in any way, we're really quick to label it dysphoria. So talk to us about, you know, what does it really mean when a patient is dysphoric and how is that going to present a little bit differently than emergence delirium? Okay, excellent question. So I will start by saying that I think the term dysphoria is often misused and overused a lot to define rough recoveries. And if you look at the definition of dysphoria in different research papers, you're likely going to find that it says something about the fact that dysphoria is an adverse side effect of opioids. But that's where the definition stops. So there, it doesn't actually go on to define the characteristic of the behavior that happens with dysphoria. And so what ends up happening is that Everybody puts their own interpretation onto that simple standard definition, and then we get a whole bunch of different definitions, all trying to define the same thing, but every single definition is a little bit different. So from an anesthesia standpoint, dysphoria is associated with giving excessively high dosages of opioids to patients that might not be in that much pain. So if you have a patient that has a rough recovery, but you gave a single standard dosage of opioid as a pre-med, and that patient has a rough recovery, there is a huge likelihood that it is not associated with dysphoria at all. But one of the big differences between dysphoria and emergence delirium is their response to human interaction. So if you have a patient that is vocal on recovery, 
you're going to administer that analgesic agent and that microdose of your sedative agent, like dexmedetomidine or even acepromazine, and the patients are going to calm down. As soon as you start talking softly to them, you're petting them, they're responding to human interaction. A patient that is truly dysphoric won't even care that you are there. They don't respond to these low doses of sedative. They don't respond to a single dose of a pure agonist opioid. They don't care that you're trying to restrain them. They don't care that you're in the cage with them, trying to pet them. Um, they make no eye contact whatsoever. So they don't respond to human interaction at all. Um, you just put your hands on the patient and they tend to be hypersensitive. So you can't even use palpation of the surgical incision site to assess if they're painful because no matter where you touch them, they're going to respond um, by vocalizing out that way. So when you feel like if you've ever in your career, in your experience, when you have come across patients that you feel like, oh, this one I do think this is dysphoria. They're not responding. They're kind of like out on their own planet doing that kind of like howl, uh, you know, that beagle howl. Um, what do you do in that instance? Do you usually reach for reversing your opioid a little bit, either through something like butorphanol or naloxone? Do you then just um, utilize something like dexmedetomidine? What's your usual course of action when you think it is true opioid-related dysphoria? Yeah, so I usually will try everything else and assume pain and emergence delirium until the treatment options for those two things have been ruled ineffective. So I'm going to follow that same algorithm. I'm going to give an additional dose of a pure agonist opioid. Um, I'm going to also attempt to give a microdose of dexmedetomidine or acepromazine initially now, I note the time frame that those drugs work. So a truly dysphoric patient, a microdose of dexmedetomidine is not going to last very long. So as soon as you give it, they might stop vocalizing and calm down. But five, 10 minutes later, they're back with that same type of behavior. So if it's a very short-lived effect from that um, sedative dose, you might have to then progress to... Uh, considering a CRI of something like dexmedetomidine. And at this point, I also check for overall signs of discomfort. Um, so things like a full bladder can make a patient really uncomfortable in recovery. And so just expressing that bladder or if they're conscious enough that you can take them outside and let them relieve themselves, um, sometimes that's all that's needed to help calm them down. You know, bandage tightness, um, if it's an older geriatric patient, how they were positioned on the table, they might be just overall sore um, because of how they were positioned on the table. So always check for signs of discomfort as well as addressing pain and adequate sedation. But if those microdoses of dexmedetomidine or acepromazine don't seem to do the job, that is the point where I start thinking, okay, well, maybe this is dysphoria. But I do not immediately jump to full reversal. So the only way to confirm that you are dealing with opioid dysphoria is to reverse the opioid. So in my hands, if I've exhausted all efforts with opioids and sedatives, I'm, I'm talking about going several hours after recovery and noting these responses. So just because one dose, one microdose of Dexmed doesn't work, I'm not 
instantly thinking dysphoria. We're several hours out now uh, from recovery, and I've got a patient that continues to act like this. So that is the point where then I might consider a partial reversal with butorphanol. Butorphanol being a mu antagonist and a kappa agonist, you're going to reverse the mu agonist effects of your pure agonist opioid, but some analgesia will still remain with the kappa agonism from the butorphanol. You do have to be careful, though, because if your patient just came out from a really painful surgical procedure, you have to ensure that adequate analgesia is still on board with other drug classes before you start considering taking away that mu agonist effects of our pure agonist opioids. So I do caution people to really think hard about doing that unless they are ensured that there are other analgesic agents on board, like having a really good regional block on board with local anesthetics, having an NSAID on board if it's um, okay for the patient, um, you know, even having ketamine on board, uh, things like that. You definitely want to make sure that, that pain is managed by other avenues before you start reversing the pure agonist opioid. So if butorphanol doesn't really do the trick and your patient continues on with this adverse behavior, that is the point where you can start thinking, well, maybe naloxone is what is needed. And so a lot of people will draw up a dose of naloxone and then dilute it in saline and titrate it to effect. And I'm, I'm fine with doing that, but just realize that when you're working with a drug like naloxone that is a pure antagonist, there's no such thing as a partial reversal with naloxone. So you're titrating it and you're trying to get the animal to stop the adverse behavior, but there is still the potential that a little bit of titrating is enough to reverse the effects and actually reverse all of the analgesia that is happening with the pure agonist opioid as well. So you might stop the adverse behavior, but now you've got another problem on your hand. Now you've got a painful patient because you took away that pure agonist opioid. So some caution should be taken when you reach for naloxone and make sure that the entire situation is evaluated first before you just immediately jump to reversing with naloxone. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we don't usually bust out the naloxone very often in recovery unless we really are thinking that it is like, a, you know, an opioid dysphoria. And, you know, these like I used a shepherd in my example because I just feel like shepherds are always kind of like nuts when it uh, when it comes to recovery. And, you know, shepherds and northern breeds just on opioids in general especially like a shepherd on hydro. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I think we've all had that like shepherd on hydro experience. Um, talk to me about some other drugs as well, because a couple of the anesthesiologists I work with, if we have used benzos, um, we are much more likely to reverse our benzos than usually the opioids if they're having a rough recovery. Do you ever reverse your benzos? And what's your experience with that? I think it depends on the time frame of effects. So midazolam and diazepam are really actually kind of short acting. Would you say like their duration of action is about two hours? So if you use the benzodiazepine as a pre-med or even as part of induction and it's been two hours, there's a good chance that that benzo is not contributing to the rough recovery. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. 
way back when I started in anesthesia, flumezanil, which is the reversal agent for benzodiazepine, was super expensive. And so because we used it so infrequently, it was hard to justify having that in our practice. Um, but nowadays, it's pretty cheap. So it's not a bad thing to have in your practice. I just don't necessarily always reach for it um, when the time frame of two hours has lapsed from giving the benzodiazepine. Now, if you are in an exotics practice, midazolam is the main sedative agent for exotic patients. And you want to get those things, <laughs> the exotic patients, up and recovered as quickly as possible. And so flumezanil is something that you should absolutely have in your practice to reverse the midazolam for exotics. Yeah, I definitely agree on that. Flumazenil. Well, I always tell people if you're utilizing midazolam, you should have flumazenil, at least one bottle of flumazenil on your shelf, you know, just in case for emergencies when you want to be able to reverse everything. All right, really quickly, um, before we wrap this up, Darcy, speak to us about what are some other things that we should consider as far as recovery goes? Because, you know, we, we're talking a lot about drugs, but what are some kind of non-pharmacological things that we should keep in mind to make sure our patients have the best recovery? Yeah. So they, in the kennel itself, they should never be placed directly on a metal cage. Um, and so you always want to make sure that the comfort in the kennel uh, is such that they have adequate padding, they have a way to get away from any soiled material. Uh, so a lot of people will use grates and then put a, a mat on top of that so for some cushion. Uh, you can use pee pads, things like that. Um, you also want to ensure that they are warm. And so if their temperature is below 99 degrees Fahrenheit, Sorry, I don't know what that is in Celsius off the top of my head. But, um, you know, they should have an active heat supply uh, provided to them in their recovery kennel. And then their temperature needs to be watched on the regular. And um, once they get up to temp, then that heat source turned off. And then within an hour, you should recheck their temperature to make sure that they can actually maintain their body temperature all on their own. Another thing is the environment overall. So they should recover in a kennel that is away from the main hustle and bustle of the clinic. Uh, it should be a quiet area, dim the lights, keep things, you know, non-stimulatory so that they can just have a nice, easy recovery um, and not be continually stimulated by people coming in and out of the room and that kind of thing. So if you have an area that you can designate a few cages to recovery, that is ideal for those for those patients. Yeah. And I think another point that you made earlier that I don't think that we think of very, maybe not as often as I should, is have they been out? Are they able to eliminate? And I've tried to get a little bit better about looking at each patient, what kind of procedure and trying to think about their recovery. You know, if they have come in and they're hit by car and we are repairing a busted up pelvis is this a candidate for a urinary catheter instead? I mean, is it going to be really difficult to get this patient up and moving? I mean, I remember earlier in my career, uh, we had a Newfoundland, like a huge Newfoundland that on that day, I don't know why, got a double TPLO. So like to get this, and this patient did not have a catheter coming off the table. So like to get this patient up and moving you know, to go out to urinate was kind of a logistical nightmare. So I do think that that's a consideration as well. Is this a patient that would benefit from a urinary catheter to keep them comfortable? And I think, you know, another thing that you said, 
you know, palpate them to express their bladder. But if they just have a huge abdominal incision, maybe palpating them to express their bladder is not going to be the best thing for you or for them. So I think those are some good things to to keep in mind as well. So really, like before we go from a technician perspective, what are some things, you know, when we're doing discharges with our clients afterwards, what are some key things that we would need to make sure that the clients understand about like post-surgical, especially post-orthopedic recovery of those first 24 to 48 hours at home? So I think that they need to know that their animal is going to be droggy. And so they should have an area of their house that is nicely padded where that animal can just rest for the first 24, 48 hours. Depending on the procedure, like if we're talking about an orthopedic procedure, confinement is important and mobility needs to be controlled. So that means that whenever that animal gets up, they need to be on a leash so that they don't get crazy with how much they're trying to move around. When they go outside, they need to be leash walked and potentially supported in the hind limb by even like a sling, a towel sling. Confinement at home can be troublesome to some animals that uh, are anxious uh, with confinement. And so that is where agents like trazodone have really become a game changer. So I would say trazodone and gabapentin based on the anxiety level of the patient to just help them continue to stay calm, especially in that first 24 to 48 hours. And then I can't stress this enough. If there is a surgical incision, it is vitally important that that animal maintain an e-collar so that they cannot get to their incision and cause further issues down the road. Yeah. Keep the e-collar on, everybody. So, Darcy, when we talk about dysphoria, um, you know, I love things that are case-based. You love things that are case-based. You have a case that you experienced this in. Uh, Walk us through that. Okay, so it was not my case. It was a greyhound that ended up having a front limb amputation due to osteosarcoma. And they took the dog to the re- the recovery area, and immediately on ex- immediately on extubation, this dog was screaming, crazy. So they immediately gave methadone and a microdose of dexmedetomidine. Well, that did nothing. Neither drug did anything. That dog continued the behavior, and so they brought the doctor in. The doctor looked at the dog, and they were like, "Oh, it's a greyhound. It's got to be dysphoric. Just put it in the cage, and it'll work itself out." Oh no! And so, twenty minutes later, I'm in the prep room, and this dog is still screaming. And I was like, "I can't deal with this. I have to figure out what's going on." So I walk into the room, and I get the skinny from the recovery tech, and she's like, "We gave it methadone. We gave it Dexmed. It didn't do anything. It's a typical greyhound sitting there whining." That is what it is. And I was like, no, this isn't what it is. So the first thing that I do is open the cage and sit down with the dog. And as soon as I did that, he stopped vocalizing. So right then and there, I knew it was not dysphoria. Because if a patient is truly dysphoric, they aren't going to care that you're in there talking to them, petting them. So the next thing that I did was start a hands-on approach with the dog. And at this practice, it was pretty custom to wrap the IV catheter with cast padding and vet wrap to keep the catheter site clean. And so as soon as I put my hands on that catheter wrap, it's wet. Okay. So I start unwrapping the vet wrap, unwrapping the cast padding, and lo and behold, the T-port isn't even attached to the catheter. So what I figured happened was that they gave the drugs intra-cast padding rather than intra-dog. 
And so I got the doctor back in there. We redosed some methadone and a microdose of dexmedetomidine, and instantly that dog calmed down. This would have been a really easy case to just dismiss as dysphoria because of a breed. But in reality, because we didn't do everything that we were supposed to do to check catheter patency, to make sure that the patient actually got the drugs, to make sure that the patient was not showing signs of pain and emergence delirium, we failed that animal for a solid 20 minutes in recovery. So I, I use this case as a reminder to just don't automatically assume a particular breed, especially like your Arctic breeds, are dysphoric just because that's a known tendency for these particular breeds. You want to do everything possible to rule out pain and emergence delirium before you automatically call a patient dysphoric. Yeah, 100%. And I feel like, again, this is just another reason why I love dexmedetomidine. Uh, <laughs> this this podcast has not been brought to you by dexmedetomidine, but we should. We should. I mean, if the dexmed people want to give us some money for this, like, uh, call me. Well, thank you so much, Darcy, for hanging out with us today and giving us all of this really great information. Um, so you're at Tuskegee, but if people want to get in touch with you or, you know, have you come lecture for them or you know, just pick your brain, where can they find you? Uh, well, I am pretty much on the Anesthesia Nerds Facebook page daily. So you can message me on that. Or you can contact me through the AVTAA website because any emails that come through that website go directly to myself. So those are probably the best two avenues to get in touch with me. All right. Thank you so much, Darcy, for being here with us. Thank you for having me, Tasha. 